Last week we began um, taking a break from our study in Ephesians and to prepare for uh, this week leading up to Easter. And even today, Palm Sunday, as we celebrate Jesus's predicted triumphal entry into Jerusalem when the crowds gathered around him on his descent from the Mount of Olives carrying palm leaves, shouting, Hosanna. Um, In preparation for this, we began looking at the problem of spiritual depression, an issue that often goes unrecognized within churches and perhaps even our church. We realize that the problem that we face is not necessarily that we are, or maybe it's that we are so wrapped up and preoccupied with the work of being the church and sacrificing our personal conditions, even sacrificing ourselves on the altar of ministry, that we move quickly past the spiritual condition that we have as we come to worship, as we come to be the church. If anything, our study through Ephesians has um, emphasized the importance of our individual position with Christ and the throne room of the God in coming together for corporate worship. Hear me. There is no corporate worship pleasing to God in a room full of people who do not have a private walk with God. That's why it's so necessary for us not to neglect this issue, that our personal lives have an impact on the way that we worship together. In fact, as we come together this morning, it's necessary for us, before we can even approach God's Word, to evaluate those things that we bring with us. That's why when we pray, and why when I pray before opening up to God's Word and and reading from this holy book, before I even do that, I pray that we would have hearts that are ready and prepared for worship. We can carry issues in this room with us. Spiritual depression, I don't think, is something that's uncommon amongst believers. In fact, it's something that um, even the most astute and and venerable uh, Christians who I've looked up to in both their writings and and in their studies and the work that they've done and in looking at the cross and the work that is accomplished by Jesus suffered with. And I invite you this morning, as I invited you at the beginning of our message last week, looking at Psalm 42, to consider whether um, you need to be honest about the spiritual condition that you have. Church is more than a place for us to come and worship. It's more than a place for us to come and fulfill benevolent ministries. It's more than a place for us to come together and sing songs with a group of people who believe and like faith with us. In fact, it must be more than that because it is the body of Christ. Our invitation every time we come here is the same invitation that Christ gave those who gathered around him. In fact, when we look at the invitation that Jesus, the invitation that we receive um, that incites the work of the apostles in the Acts, in the, uh, the book of Acts, and establishes Jesus' church through centuries past. Luanne, if you wouldn't mind, I left my clicker in my office. Could you click to the next slide? When we look at the invitation that he gives us, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If there's anything we can draw from Jesus' own invitation, it was that he expected, even anticipated, that there would be those who would be lowly in heart, those who would be labored and tiresome, those who would be heavy laden. And he calls them to him to give them rest. That's why we gather here this morning, that we would receive that rest, that our souls would find that rest, that we would be reminded that the yoke that Jesus brings to us is not a yoke that is a picture of one person carrying a burden alone. While we might be called to carry our own cross, Jesus says, come and take my yoke because he promises to share in carrying it with us. That's why our walk with God is so essential. Our individual walk with God is a commitment to realize that we are not walking in anything alone. In fact, I believe this is at the heart of the psalm that we began studying last week. I'd like to remind us this morning that our time at church is a place where we can be honest with what we are experiencing. In fact, that this honesty is crucial as we consider the invitation that Jesus shared of his yoke in the picture of two going alongside one another, we are not alone. This is why we have the church, because God does not promise a faith that leads to a life without suffering, but a life that glorifies him so that we can celebrate his good works when we are gathered together again in heaven. Think then of the condition of the speaker in Psalm 42. Think then of this hope that was resolved as he looked forward to the fulfillments that would come from the promises of God. This is where our attention is drawn this morning as we look at the condition and the attitude of the psalmist. If you would, if you haven't already, take a moment to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42 where we will look at the last half of this psalm and... um, I say last half, but I'd like to note that Psalm 43 is naturally an extension of this psalm. Most likely it continues over as one. So really this is just the middle section. Um, But we'll be looking at verses 6 through 11 this morning. First, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to you, ready to hear from your word, longing for your presence in our lives, Lord, I pray that we would set aside the burdens that we carry with us from this week. God, I know that there are stresses that weigh on us. Help me not to think of those now. And if I do, help me to bring them to you. God, help me not to simply turn away from the things that burden us, but God, help me to seek you in them. As we turn to your law, Lord, I pray that our hearts would delight that you would reveal to us the truth that you have for us and that you would give us clear application for our lives. Lord, I pray that you would not withhold yourself from us now, but as we study your word, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen. And the Bible says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and from Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By the day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, 
where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Last week we looked very practically at the first part of the psalm and even the instructions um, that I would say that we find in the way that the psalmist responds, the way that he remembers what God has brought him through, the way that he runs to be with God's people, to worship in the throng, to lead them even in the procession serving in ministry. This week, I would like to flip the script a little bit, and rather than just talking about how we can get out of a condition of spiritual despair, let's take a moment first to look at how it might be a blessing. How it might be a blessing. In fact, spiritual despair might be the greatest blessing that we have available to us. It might be, through God's providence, one of the greatest gifts that we have. Blessed downcasting. Because it leads me to desire God. It leads me to desire God. Verse 6, the psalmist writes, My soul is cast down within me, and therefore I remember from the land of the Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. This picture of the place that the psalmist is reflecting on and trying to remember is the promised land of Jerusalem. He takes us from the depths of his soul. Why are you cast down, my soul, in verse 5? all the way up to the mountains that surrounded the, um, the, the beginning of the Jordan River. He calls back this picture of the living water that God provides to us and the imagery and the symbolism of the promised land in Jerusalem. He points us to the heights of spending time in God's presence. When we know that we are walking with God and we are assured of His presence, the speaker reminds us of the moments in his personal spiritual life when God has abundantly been present for him. How then, if these are the things that we long for, how is it possible that being downcast can be considered a blessing? Can it be as simple as that in your human frailty you forget in those times to celebrate and to rejoice with God? How often have you ever challenged yourself to be ever more conscious of God's presence in your life as you walk throughout your day? If you have... I'm sure, like me, you have also experienced how quickly your mind shifts from being aware of God's presence to being completely reliant upon your own intuition and knowledge and skill. I mean, it doesn't take long. As soon as the phone rings, we forget that God is present with us. As soon as we start walking and we have to make breakfast and we're starting to think about all of these different things that we're putting together and setting a timer for eggs so that we don't burn them and roil them, all of these different things and all of a sudden we've forgotten God's presence. Not that He's left us, but in the good times it's so much so easy to neglect. In this time of despair, the psalmist cries out. He remembers God's presence with him in his downcast state. He is led evermore to desire God. The speaker recalls the presence of God in his life in Jerusalem. His real longing is not for the promised land. While he refers to Mount Mizar, he's actually longing for Mount Zion, the time when he can be in God's presence uninhibited by the sins and the wretchedness of this world. 
He's reminded of the depravity that is wrought into a world that is born in the condition of sin because of an inherited state within all of us. His longing is for an uninhibited relationship with God. That in his walking, in his daily life, in the minutiae and in the boring, in the plain, that he would be ever more aware of God's presence. What a blessing it is to experience seasons of being downcast when we are reminded of those little moments that God is still with us. I notice also that the psalmist doesn't necessarily refer to himself. He doesn't say, how am I going to... Oh, the world has great wisdom. And I feel so bad for the people who listen to it. I'm in a poor state. Let me pull myself up by my bootstraps. Let let me toughen up and get through this. Let me endure a bit harder. Let me push longer. While there might be wisdom in being able to endure, while it is biblically wise to not be a sluggard or a lazy person, God does not call us to do things on our own. In his downcast state, the psalmist turns to God's deliverance. He turns to the promise that God has given him that he will deliver him. Spurgeon wrote, while the speaker recalls the presence of God in his life in Jerusalem, his real longing is for Zion. The speaker recognizes that his comfort will not come from himself but from God. If self were to furnish comfort, we should be but a poor provender. There is no solid foundation for comfort in such fickle frames as our heart is subject to. Consider this. While it might be possible that in spiritual depression or in conditions of spiritual despair that we might find ourselves longing ever more for God's presence in our life simply because we know what it's like. Spurgeon reminds us that the next best thing to living in the light of the Lord is to be unhappy until we have it, to pant for it hourly. The next best thing to living in the light of God's love is to be miserable until you have it again. Is that good advice? I think it is. God's allowing us to endure a downcast condition is for our own benefit. That we would be reminded not just to celebrate Him in the small moments when things are good, but that we would long for him even more when things are bad. The desire and the longing for God is at the heart and the purpose of, in fact, all of our spiritual disciplines. Back up for a second and think about this. All of the things that we talk about in church that we ought to be doing, praying, doing Bible study, meditating on God's word, fasting, um, all of these, these, taking a Sabbath and resting, all of these different spiritual disciplines, We think about them, and if you're not careful, if you're not doing those longing for God's presence, what you're actually doing is you are training your brain to be a legalist. 
in your, in your failing human condition and in your sin, in your wanting, when you make these spiritual disciplines and you take out longing for God, what you're actually doing is you are running back to the law. You are fleeing from God's grace that he gives you so that you can spend time in the law and be miserable. I mean, how often have you neglected your time of prayer in the morning and felt bad about yourself? Rather than experiencing God's grace in all things, how often have you fallen short of a Bible study reading plan or anything else that you're doing and you allow yourself to feel miserable instead of relishing God's grace? This is what I'm saying. These disciplines, they don't exist so that we can adopt a legalist mindset. They exist because we're actually training our flesh to long for God. In fact, when you look at the psalmist, the way that he cries out for God and the way that he longs for God, it doesn't come from a place of, I've suddenly realized my need for God and in my lowest moment, I have turned myself over to him. This isn't the, the bedside confession. This, isn't the, the, this is, comes from a life of living in God's presence and whenever we experience this downcast condition, experiencing the benefits of those disciplines. The reason why we are urged to pray, to study, to meditate, to fast, to take rest, and the spiritual disciplines go on, is not so that we can become a legalistic group of believers who through our own grit and determination become more holy. Rather, it is so that in our forsaking of ourselves and in our humbling ourselves to God and remembering the sacrifice of the cross and the atoning work of Christ, the perfect blood spilled that washes us clean, we look forward to the day that Jesus will once again have his triumphal entry. His triumphal entry that will not come on a colt, but it will come on a white stallion. Like the psalmist in our downcast condition, we train ourselves to long for God. We do not have a list of chores that we must keep up with. Rather, these disciplines exist and are taught to us because they train our inner self to seek God and to be reminded that He is with us. Surely, the real measure of a spiritual discipline's effectiveness is not our ability to keep up with them. Rather, it is our personal awareness that God is with us in every moment of our day. We see the effects of this in the psalmist who even in his complaints and laments in this psalm naturally turns to prayer, naturally moves to a conversation with God. Do you not see that our downcast condition is a blessing? Blessed downcastness because it points us to God. Second, blessed downcastness because it helps us to recognize God in our life. The psalmist contrasts the heights of the upper Jordan Valley. These, and if you want to look at it geographically, we're talking 9,000 feet above sea level and the origins of the Jordan River with the depths of his despair. If, um, if you let me geek out for a little bit just on the linguistic side of things of what is happening here, look at the juxtaposition or the side-by-side side comparison of these mountaintops and then what comes in verse 6 my soul is down within me. Verse 7, deep calls to deep. There is depth 
in our suffering. I can remember I hung out with a lot of artsy folks in high school. And, you know, our favorite songs, and you probably know this too, high schoolers love to be depressed. They're addicted to it, I think. The deepest songs are the ones that spoke of real inner turmoil. I can remember singing songs about breakups and thinking this was the deepest thing I've ever experienced. When in reality, I wasn't even mature enough to appreciate what it means whenever a relationship falls apart. In my aged wisdom, I have learned that I still do not even comprehend the depths of sorrow that is possible in this world. It doesn't take much for me to turn on the news and to realize that I have been abundantly blessed. I have been spared much of the Mars of this world. Even in looking at the cross, I'm reminded of the suffering that I do not have to endure on my own. I love my artsy friends. We were onto something. Suffering is not a unique experience. It's universal. There's not a person alive in this world today that has not experienced a downcast condition. You're not unique for suffering. But what makes Christians unique is the way that we view it. Not just that we're blessed because it points us to God and it draws us closer to Him, it causes us to long for Him, causes us to long for the peace that comes from His indwelling Spirit and everything that we experience in these disciplines, but it causes us to recognize Him. This picture, these mountains that the the psalmist points to were actually the beginning tributaries of the Jordan River that would flow through the area. Again, the psalmist points us back to the imagery of the living water that God sprouts up within us, the living water that is not anywhere to found on a map, but as Christians through the Spirit that has come to dwell within us. Instead of enjoying the living water of the living God, he was continually faced, though, with an expression of God's judgment. Verse 7 says, At the roar of your waterfalls, all the breakers in your waves have gone over me. Even in the tumultuous deluge of water overcoming him, the psalmist recognizes that it is God that is in control of all things. Notice that he doesn't say, I can't pull my head above water. He says that it is your breakers and your waves. Even the suffering that we experience does not happen outside of God's providence. God is not out of control when we experience these things. Rather, it is through His will. Oh, and this is a hard thing to say to somebody who is currently suffering. God wants you to go through this because He's allowed it to happen. I think of Job again and his well-meaning friends. And I want to tell those friends that say such truths to me to get out of my face. How can we recognize God in those times when we are suffering? How can we recognize that God is in control of all parts of our life? That the spared suffering that we have already escaped through 
is still present in this world. One comforting reminder is that we are promised to never experience the greatest suffering that is owed to us. When we look at the cross and we see the suffering of Christ, not just in his physical abuse and the the whips running along his back, his, his pierced wrist as he hangs on a tree, it's not just the physical anguish that he experiences, but the spiritual anguish as he takes on that spiritual separation from the Father's love that is necessary for us to experience salvation. God's greatest sacrifice is paid for us once and for all. When you suffer, you still do not come close to the depths of God's wrath. Not even near it. And why is it necessary for us to remember this? Because I would contend that in your suffering, rather than just exploring God's wrath, you are actually exploring the depths of His mercy. You'll never know If you're saved, if you have a right relationship with God, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and made Him Lord of your life, you will never know the depths of God's wrath. You are promised to be spared from that. How will you ever appreciate what you have been spared from unless you explore the depths of God's mercy? In suffering, we explore those depths. We come closer to seeing how deep God's love and mercy runs for us. This is a deep experience unknown to babes in grace, but common enough to such as do business on great waters of affliction. To such, it is some comfort to remember that the waves and billows are the Lord's, thy waves and thy billows, says the speaker of Psalm 42. They are all sent and directed by Him and achieves His design. And the child of God, knowing this, is more resigned. We might be more resigned in our suffering to recognize that God is working through it. Truly, the surrender of the Christian is in recognizing that in our suffering, God is working in ways that we probably are not capable of comprehending. It's easy to look back and to say, I want to see what good would possibly come from this, but the truth is an eternal God who sees all time, who's all-knowing of all conditions and responses, is actually so aware of what He is doing, it isn't even possible for us to comprehend what good could come from suffering, but there is good. God is at work in all things. The speaker, as Spurgeon writes, thought that every trouble in the world had met in him. But he exaggerated. For all the breaking waves of Jehovah have passed over none but the Lord Jesus. There are griefs to which he makes us children, makes his children strangers for his love's sake. Henry March wrote in reflection of this psalm, Deep to deep incessant calling, tossed by furious tempest roll, endless waves and billows falling, overwhelm my fainting soul. Yet I see a power presiding mid the tumult of the storm, ever ruling, ever guiding, 
love's intentions to perform. Yes, mid sorrow most distressing, faith contemplates thy design, humbly bowing and confessing all the waves and billows thine. The mature Christian, when facing such conditions of spiritual despair, does not turn in anger to God. Rather, he turns in humble resignation to his sovereignty. When we allow ourselves to recognize that biblically God is in control of all things, it forces us to look at what He is accomplishing in His will. It is in the searching that we begin to long for Him again, that we are in fact drawn closer to Him and that our walk is strengthened. The Lord is slow to bring back those who He has banished. Our souls aching with fear long for His love of time past. Suffering isn't so bad when we see what God is really at work in doing. When we read of the magnitude of God's suffering and, and um, the, the magnitude of His love for us that He pursues us, as we read through biblical history, even going all the way back to Genesis, and we see the way that man has ran away from Him, and we find God constantly pursuing man, pursuing you, we are reminded that even in our suffering, something great is happening, not just because it reminds us to long for Him, but because it teaches us to recognize Him working. Not just by causing me, but enabling me to see that He is working. This is why we are blessed. This is why we are blessed. John Bunyan wrote, And Lord, my soul in the depth of sorrow calls for help to Thy depth of mercy. For though I am sinking and going down, yet not so low, but that Thy mercy is yet underneath me, do of Thy compassions open those everlasting arms and catch him that has no help and stay in himself. For so it is with one that is falling into the well or dungeon. Now you have to appreciate Bunyan's archaic language here, that he literally pictures himself falling not just into the the depths of this water that is starting to cataclysmically come over the speaker as he's overwhelmed, but rather as he pictures himself falling into an abyss. And he realizes that even now he has not hit rock bottom, and even now God is walking alongside him. We are reminded that God is at work in all things and that there is no exception to that. There is no measure in exploring the depths of God's great love. But how can we come nearer to the understanding and searching for this immeasurable, what Paul writes in Ephesians, insearchable explanation of God's mercy? How can we come nearer to that than experiencing it for ourselves, that even in our depths we can experience God's presence in our lives. When I look at this line in the text, I am reminded that there is something more at work than just being pushed into pursuing God because He is the only one who can deliver me from a pitiable condition. But I'm actually enabled in my need for God to commune with Him. I'm actually enabled to have a closer walk with God because I realize what He is doing, that He must be doing something that is in His nature that is good. Through my time with God in my lowest places, I have found myself closer to Him than ever. Loved ones, there are no easy answers in the Bible 
And I think many have tried to search the biblical text for an explanation to what we would call the problem of evil. That is, that there's evil in the world, God is good, God is in all control because He's all-powerful, and therefore there's this problem of evil. How could an all-loving God, who is all-good, how could He allow this to happen? Either He is not all-powerful and is out of control, or what? Biblically, we know this to be untrue. It's, a, it's an unfounded um, line of thought, but I would say that the argument is solidly valid. When we search the Bible looking for an answer to the problem of evil, while the Bible is completely sufficient for all things that we need to know in life and in faith, it does not provide an easy answer. In fact, I don't even find it comforting to think that God might be edifying me in my suffering. He might be taking sandpaper to the coarse edges of my soul that I might be better conformed to the image of Him. We read about that in Romans chapter 5, and surely it is at least some explanation that I can rejoice that I'm being made more holy. But it does not comfort me in my lowest hour. It, It certainly isn't good advice to give that counsel to somebody who is currently suffering. As a chaplain, I avoided such truth. God doesn't call us to explain away the sufferings of our friends or even the sufferings of ourselves. He calls us to weep with those who weep, Romans chapter 12. To experience suffering and long for God's presence in it. Deep calls to deep. In my lowest hour, I have been closer to God than I have ever been when I had no conflict in my life. There are no easy answers. The psalmist in verse 8, now turning back out of a a period of lament, so he's complaining or he's launching his grievances against what God, the condition that God has brought him to, in verse 8 turns back to hope. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. God is with us when the sun rises and when the sun sets. There is no exception. There is not a day that dawns that the sun that shines will not shine on the grace of God for His creation. We are reminded that God is worthy of our praise in all things. Note that as we began this study last week, we actually neglected the notes that are found at the beginning. Turning back to verse 1, we find that Psalm 42 begins, To the choir master, a masquille of the sons of Korah. I'd like now to consider what these instructions mean. A masquille is an ode of instruction. The psalm that we find the psalmist speaking, I would almost say indignantly towards God. Where is my God? And he even moves on, he develops. I love this. In verse 3, he, we hear the crowd around him saying, where is your God? And then he moves. He moves. Um, I walked away from my notes. Is it verse 9? He cries out to God himself. Why have you forgotten me? No longer is it his tormentor speaking to him about God, adding pain and suffering to the condition that he's in, but now he himself cries out to God, I would say indignantly, why have you forsaken me? Why have you allowed me to be here? Right after returning to hope, 
Right after returning and realizing that God is worthy of our praise, he comes to God and he says, where have you gone? Loved ones, this ode of instruction is not recorded in Holy Scripture for the purpose that we would mock the psalmist, but rather that it is an instruction book. It is a playbook. It is the manual for experiencing suffering. These are the instructions that we would come not only humbly to God, but that we would expose our deepest self to Him. I, I, I don't know how to stress this enough, but I, I see it. It's so common. People do not want to come to God in their lowest moments because they are afraid of what they are experiencing within them. I feel downcast. How am I to go to a God who has sacrificed everything for me, given His life on the cross, and to go to Him and to say, God, where are you? But this is exactly what the psalmist does. He goes to God and he bears his heart, even if it is indignant. Like a child, we can go to the Father and we can express our most honest self. God, I need you. I long for you. A masquille is an instructive ode. The psalm does not repeat itself in the despair of depression that we would get lost in it. Rather, it is an instruction for us. In our study so far, it would be safe to observe that the writer gives us the experimental expressions of his soul. These are calculated expressions. They instruct those born of God in how to grieve, how to sit in despair, and how to long for God. No matter how old you are or how um, knowledgeable you are or how spiritually adept you are or how far you have come in your walk with God, we need an example before us. One of the purposes of the church is that we would find mentors, that we would find disciples who would make disciples of their own. The calling of the church isn't that everyone would follow one man other than Christ, who is the head of the church. But, but think about my position as a pastor. I am not simply the lead disciple maker in this church. Rather, you are. In fact, you are the one that is called to take somebody under you and to show them how to live in life. The, the role of the father in the household is to experience life in front of his family so that they can see an example of pursuing God. Here, for somebody who doesn't have an example, we find the speaker of Psalm 42 is our mentor in giving us a playbook in how to long for God even in our moments of despair. Because the world teaches us the wrong advice. If you go searching on Pinterest or Facebook and you look at the clever quotes that are pasted everywhere, oftentimes you find witty little banter-like phrases that I think, without even thinking, we like or move past them or even commend them to somebody else. The only advice that is worthy of substantial help in our life comes from God's Word and from instruction that is lived out by people who have experienced God. I'm reminded often that you cannot lead somebody where you have never gone. You cannot lead someone where you have never gone. Therefore, if nothing else, your suffering is for the purpose that one day you might be able to lead someone through like suffering and having experienced it yourself. 
through the experimental expressions of despair towards God, you are enabled to walk with somebody in their suffering. Discipleship isn't walking somebody through a program of systematic theology. You want to know what discipleship is? It's being heartbroken and allowing somebody into your most vulnerable position that they might see how you continue to pursue God in your despair. You know what discipleship is? Discipleship is celebrating everything that has happened in your life and realizing that none of it was you and turning to God and singing praises. For generations, I think the church has neglected this biblical principle, not only in the household of fathers leading their children and their wives, not only in the church of disciples making more disciples, taking somebody younger along with them to experience this suffering and exposing them to what is actually coming up. This isn't just protecting people from the anguish that comes in living in a world. If we truly believe that the world is encased in sin because of the fall of man, then it is necessary for us to expose those who we love to such anguish when they are ready, showing them that we are capable of pursuing God's love despite it, even in the ways that we would be humbly bowing and confessing all the waves and billows thine. When we follow the advice of Facebook and Pinterest, sometimes we adopt the kind of prayer that we find in Star Trek. Uh-oh. I woke some of you up good. What kind of prayer do they have in Star Trek? You remember any time they found themselves in a position of trouble, they would kind of call up, Beam me up, Scotty! <coughs> oh, I think it's funny that we find Christians who pray a similar prayer. Anytime we find ourselves in suffering, we say, Beam me up, God! Take me home! The prayer of the psalmist is not God, just deliver me from this. God, take me home. The prayer of the psalmist, the prayer that we should have, if we have a good mentor who is leading us, is God, come be with me. Rather than God, take me to be with you, God, come be with me here. Come suffer alongside me. Help me to be aware of your presence in this moment. Help me to know that you have not left me. We don't pray, God, beam me up, get me out of here so that I can go from down here to up there. Instead, we pray, make up there come down here. We say that we know that the Bible does not teach us to expect wealth and health or any sort of prosperity gospel that promises us that through faithful obedience to God that we would experience great things in this world. But I really wonder, do we really believe that? There's a greater purpose to our lives than our carnal pleasure. But I wonder, do we really believe that? Why are we so quick to pray that God would deliver us from the stresses of life rather than hungrily longing to be aware of God in the hardest moments of despair? Do we really believe that the message that we preach, does Jesus not offer us an easy yoke? We may not doubt our own resolve, but I am concerned when the Lord's presence is not our priority. 
God desires to go deeper with us. Our afflictions are not only because we use circumstances to pull us there. The truth is, we are incapable of seeing the greatness of God's will. We just are. And that isn't comforting, I know. And I'm standing here talking about spiritual depression, and I I pray that some of you have come here looking for the hope that God offers, and I stand here saying that there are just no easy answers. But knowing the truth of who God is, knowing that He is present with us, knowing that truth, we ask, is His desire, not for the world, not for my neighbor, but what is His desire for me? How am I to grow in this? What is God's desire for you? His desire is to be with you. And to do that, you must invite Him into the moments of your life. You do not do that by pretending that you have no grievances with Him. You do that by recognizing that you need Him to show Him the goodness that is in Him. Coming back to what Jesus has commended the apostles, what has been the gospel that they preached... If you read your bulletin this morning, I compared what I called the gospel of minimal entrance requirements. I thought that was a fun title. I feel like it comes from the 16th century. What is the gospel of minimal entrance requirements? Sometimes I think we get wrapped up in this. We think, I put my faith in Christ, everything else is done. I simply, I have my ticket in my back pocket. As I come to the station, I'll scan it and I will be allowed to go into heaven. Jesus' invitation to us wasn't come and pick up these free tickets to heaven. It was come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, that you would find rest for your soul. Come and take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is not heavy. When we think of the image of the yoke, And please don't run away from this. The yoke is designed that two ox could carry the weight of whatever is behind them together. When Jesus says, come and take my yoke, he is not saying, come bear thy cross. That's somewhere else in Scripture. When he says, come to me, you who are weary and lowly in spirit, he says, come take my yoke, because in the other stirrup will be me. In your lowest moment of despair, I will be there. Friends, we tend to project our natural expectations about who God is onto Him instead of fighting to let the Bible surprise us into what God Himself says He is. God has already done the work of searching after man. In fact, He is still doing it to this day, seeking after those who would come to know Him. We do not have to go seeking to find Him. We simply need to allow Him to be part of the moment that we are experiencing now. Note that the yoke does not go around the necks of one ox. It goes around two. The anguish and the sufferings that come with living in a fallen world are the repeated promises that we will never experience the sufferings and anguish of a depraved soul. Because God has already done the work of taking that upon Himself. 
He has endured what we cannot alone endure. And now we can be sure that we do nothing without him. I close with that this morning. And I ask, I mentioned the challenge of trying to be aware of God's presence in our lives through the minutia of everything that we do. Would you take that challenge to heart this week? And when you, like me, come to the place that you have forgotten to be conscious of God's presence in your life, do not find yourself downcast, simply to return to Him because He has not left you. Simply invite that consciousness of God's presence back into your life that you can remember, no matter your circumstance, you are never alone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We are humbled by the work that you have done. God, as we consider the crowds that would sing out in less than a week's time to crucify you, those same voices that sang Hosanna as you come down from the Mount of Olives. God, I pray that we would seek you and we would know that we would shout Hosanna in the highest, that we would know that you are with us no matter our circumstances, that we would not turn against you, that we would not be those who sing crucify him even though we know it is our sin that put you there as in the song that we sang this morning. Jesus, help us to be aware of the comforter you have sent to be with us. Help us to know the Father's love and to regard ourselves as children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we prepare to sing?